0: When Rabbi Berechiah began teaching the Megillah, intriguingly, he selected a pasuk in Yeshaya, parak mem aleph, which has seemingly absolutely nothing to do with the direct storyline of Megillah Esther, but his drasha embeds a reference to, of all people, Haman and Nachash and their relationship. The pasuk in Yeshaya, parak mem aleph, writes as follows: Mi paal viasa. Who created the world? Implemented it, of course. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Koreh Mirosh. He signaled the various generations when he initially created the world. The literal translation of the pasuk is, of course, a pasuk about foreknowledge and human history and providence. HaKadosh Baruch Hu was not just a creator of a static, natural cosmos, but habituated and populated our world with human beings with generations. Each generation visits this world and delivers its message and impacts our reality. And yet, despite the freedom of choice, which is inherent and fundamental to the human condition, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is still Karei HaDaros MeRosh. HaKadosh Baruch Hu still literally reads or assigns, understands, anticipates the ebb and flow of human history, the ebb and flow of literally anthology. It's a Pasuk about human anthology and HaKadosh Baruch Hu's foreknowledge. Rebbe Barachia, however, interpreted this pasuk that Keresh already established certain transitional figures, people who would introduce new ideas, new experiences, new crimes, turning points in history, and people who signaled or punctuated those turning points. So Keresh Baruchu, Rebbe Berechia, Darshent, Mitchilas Shalalam, Hiskina Hu, Luchal Echad, echad already Dedicated or designated individuals who would change history by introducing new ideas or new concepts or new activities. So, Kodesh Baruch Hu assigned Adam as Roshli the first creature. Cain was the first murderer. Hevel, the first victim of murder, so murder was introduced to the world. Noah was the first people to take refuge to be saved by a natural disaster. Avram was the first to be circumcised. Moving on in the list, Haro Nakhoin introduces priests. Moshe introduces prophecy. So the era of priests and prophecy begins with Yitzhak Mitzrayim and is trumpeted by two individuals, one who was the first prophet, one who was the first priest. Um, David was the first poet, or the first to combine religious verses and and musical accompaniment. and Agnim, the first person to sing, but not just to sing, but to sing hymns. Nebuchadnezzar, this list doesn't just include heroes, it also includes villains, and doesn't just include Jews, but it includes Kings and, and, and tyrants, monarchs who affected the world around them. The Vuchanessa Rosh Le Macharivim. He was the first to destroy, to devastate society around him, to conquer, to overcome, overwhelm, to trample. And of course, part of his trespass was the Beis Amikdash. And then, Achashverosh and Haman enter the list. Rabbi Berechia said, Achashverosh Rosh Le the first person to sell. Haman Rosh konim. He was the first person to purchase. Now this is an obvious reference to Haman offering 10,000 shekels to Achashverosh for permission, for authorization, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> to authorize his genocidal plans to annihilate the Jewish people. And Achashverosh accepts, so effectively he sells the Jewish people to Haman, who purchases them and purchases the right to, to implement his own final solution. Now this is factually true, but why is it so important? I mean, there are so many other qualifiers to describe Achashverosh and Haman by, and Haman's criminal, uh, dastardly behavior. It almost understates it, it almost sanitizes Haman. That's all it was about? Purchasing and buying? What hidden theme of Megillah Esther does this image evoke? That Achashverosh was the first person to sell, he obviously wasn't the first person to sell anything, and Haman obviously wasn't the first person to buy anything, so there's a a deeper and and obviously darker message. So to understand this medrash, the overall context of the events of Shushan, the events of the Megillah, have to be appreciated. When we see the city of Shushan, and the culture and the political system, it's strikingly, democratic, it's strikingly pluralistic, it's strikingly dynamic, it isn't stagnant, it isn't hierarchical, it isn't locked into generations and generations of dynastic rule by some uh, minor family who had seized the throne and had imposed its will upon the people. It's a very, very democratic, pluralistic, and even tolerant society. And you sense this at all levels, you sense this in the political echelon, Haman comes from nowhere... And the Torah is very clear, So he is appointed from nowhere. We know nothing of his past. He isn't one of the landed gentry or one of the aristocratic noblemen. Chazal tell us that Achashverosh was someone who, even according to one day in Chazal, he was called Achashverosh, He ascended the throne himself, and tradition has it. Chazal cite a medrash that he was a stable hand in um, in Shatzar's horse, Corral, and when Belshazzar's palace was raided the night that he um, that he violated the Kleha HaMikdash, and he saw the famous apparition in Sefer Daniel, and his dynasty was taken, so his entire family was annihilated. But Achashverosh escapes, and he marries Vashti, who has royal blood, and he ascends the throne on his own. So that's at least Chazal's interpretation. This is a political or politically dynamic society as evidence not just in the rise of Haman, but in the actual ascent of Achashverosh. We sense that things aren't locked in, queens come and go, Vashti is deposed, Esther replaces her. But it's not just Achashverosh, Haman, Vashti, and Esther who demonstrate the political fluidity of this society. It's also Mordechai. Mordechai freely sits in the Shiremelech. He becomes a lobbyist. He becomes one of the king's uh, um, advisors. And perhaps this is why... Big Sun and Seresh were so infuriated, and they hatched their plan to assassinate Veresh to poison him, because they could have been part of an old guard, which better appreciated political stability, political systems, hierarchy, clear, clearly designated food chain, haves and have-nots. And it's refreshing to see a society that's built on pluralism, but it's not just democratic in its assignment of power, it's pluralistic culturally. And the pluralism is quite evident at the party where no one is forced to drink wines, which they're unaccustomed to. Lasos, kirzon, ish um, hashtia, chadas, enones. No one is even forced to drink wine. It's, it's optional. And for us, this isn't so powerful, but when compared or contrasted with political, um, aristocratic meals, which were highly regimented, in which it was a clear... Ceremony and procedure and order to the meal. This was a meal in which people were allowed to express themselves. And even in the end, the decrees, the decrees of Achashverosh, particularly the decrees about man ruling his home, being the master of his palace, even there, these very dogmatic decrees are qualified that every letter, every language was interpreted, and each man had the right to speak in his home the language he chose. So even when Achashverosh is acting dogmatically and imposing what we would call chauvinistic rule over women, it's still, it's, from, from a gender perspective, chauvinistic, but from a cultural perspective, it's highly pluralistic, and it's highly democratic. So this is the society that that is presented in Shushan, and and you have to say, from our modern perspective, it's extremely refreshing, it's encouraging, it's something we would support, something we would endorse. But what happens in a free-willing liberal society without any cultural, ethnic, racial, political code to unite people? Every society has its codes. They could be political, they could be racial, they could be ideological, sometimes they're religious, And these codes unite people. People rally around similar codes. They believe in them. They live by them. They organize and ordinate their lives around these codes. And in Shushan, there's there's no code. There's no common religion, no common language, no common eating style, drinking style. There isn't even a political hierarchy to dominate people's day-to-day. It's democratic. It's free-willing. So what happens? There is one code and one value that rises to the top that's cross-cultural, which is colorblind, which every ethnic, ethnicity, race, every religion, every political system, so to speak, succumbs to and, and rallies around. And that's, of course, the power of gold, power of money. This is an opulent, rich society, and money won't buy your way in. And it's very clear that people are displaying not their political heritage, their aristocracy, their coat of arms, the family they come from. If anything, what's on display is the opulence, the money, the wealth, the affluence, the Haro says Osher Kivor Malchuso Esther Perak Aleph Pasik David. Achashverosh is intent on displaying his wealth, not his coat of arms, not his past. Doesn't take out the book of his ancestors, and and it's clear that this is not just opulent, but it's ostentatious. Chor Karpas Utechelas Achuz Bechav Levuts Vargaman Al Galilei Kesef Linens dyes, materials, precious metals, zahav v'chasef, al-ritzfas b'had Vashesh v'dar Money knows no boundaries. Money knows no cultural boundaries. And money has risen to the top of this society in Shushan. And the results, of course, are devastatingly immoral. It's very clear that the opulence and the ostentatiousness leads to orgiastic behavior decadence, degeneracy, 180 days of eating, of sexual frivolity, of, of, of meaningless um, unemployment or non-activity, just wasting your time aimlessly. It's certainly not a work ethic on display. It's not just the absence of any work ethic, but it's it's also it's exploitative. If, if there's a 180-day-long 100, party in Shushan, for all the residents of Shushan, someone is paying through the nose for this. Someone is fitting the, putting the bill and Chazal say that Achashverosh was called Achashverosh, she'akol nasim rashim because he depleted, he fleeced, in our terminology, he fleeced his entire kingdom. The 127 provinces were all paying through the nose so that the people of Shushan could party throughout the night. And there's clearly a moral statement here about what happens to a society which, in the pursuit of democracy and freedom, abandons or abdicates any cultural code, and oftentimes those cultural codes are themselves subjugating and exploitative. So in the search for a more liberal, balanced, and and enfranchised society, we sometimes eliminate those cultural codes, and, and, and that's, in general, a favorable elimination. We liberate ourselves from the tyranny of those codes, but sometimes in the vacuum, and nature abhors a vacuum, and anthropology abhors a vacuum. In the vacuum of any code, money occupies the pole position. Money fascinates and transfixes a society. And that itself is unfortunate, where we begin to worship money and affluence, and money becomes equivalent with celebrity. We worship people because of their affluence. But the slide from a society which idolizes wealth into a society which acts not just immoral, but voyeuristic, looking at each other's wealth, looking at each other's lives, reality shows, rather than shows that at least could be called art, even though the art may not be refined or enlightened, but at least a, a sitcom or or drama show would be considered art creating an idea from nothing, we, we, we prefer to look at each other, we prefer to gawk at each other, and, and to look at each other eating, and and to look at our, our lowest moments, our crass moments, our bodies, and and you see this very, very clearly in Shishan. You see this very clearly that they were in the Chatzar Ginas, Bisan HaMelech. So Haman's paying 10,000 shekel for genocide is not just incidental, it's not just an anecdote to the story, but it is a it epitomizes a society that had worshipped wealth so deeply that even genocide had a price. And as long as you could pay the price you could commit whatever grave moral crime imaginable, whether it be the immorality of the party or the sheer uh, butchery of Haman's intended genocide. There's a parallel between the two, and it's hard to imagine anything worse than genocide. Indeed, that's true. But uh, the people at the party don't take a pass either. They're not exonerated. Their behavior comes from the the same dangerous source, the idolization of wealth. And somehow Esther entering this opulent, pornographic, voyeuristic, money-based society, she restores the chain to her aesthetics aren't as important as inner charm, as personal beauty, as wisdom, as she's not a sex object, she's a human being, she's a woman. Um, And with the restoration of, of values that are more reflective of who the Jews are and should be, comes not just a restoration of, of beauty as opposed to physical, aesthetic, voyeuristic, pornographic beauty, but personal beauty. And also there's a shift in the way money is used. And perhaps that's why one of the institutionalized aspects of Purim is not just to read the Megillah, but to deliver money to poor people. Something which wouldn't seem to be natural to, specifically the story of Esther, would be natural to any of to give tzedakah, but the Matanos are meant to neutralize or counterbalance the abuse of money of Haman's genocidal price for the Jewish people. And it's interesting that when Esther is appointed as the queen, that Achashverosh uh, relaxes the tax burden upon all the provinces. And instead of a party which is geared towards disproportionate distribution of wealth, where the people centralized in in, um, in Shusham are, uh, live it up, and indulge; and those in the countryside are fleeced. There's an more equal distribution, and even in the end, he does impose a tax, but doesn't sound like the tax is is devastating. It sounds like the tax is is restorative, is, is an appropriate recalibration uh, and proportionate redistribution of wealth. So when Rabbi Berachia cited the pasuk in Yeshaya. I talked about HaKadosh Baruch who recognizing the passage of generations and certain people who are transitional figures and assigning the designation of Achashverosh, Rosh LaMohrim. Achashverosh was the first seller. Haman, Rosh Konim, Haman was the first purchaser. And there's actually a market for genocide. That's not just incidental to the story. That is characteristic of the culture of Shushan. And when the Jewish people are punished, are criticized for participating in the seuda v'achashverosh, it's in part because they align themselves with the culture of shushan that represents so many vulgar and crass values, even though the food is kosher. To be a Jew is not just to eat kosher food, but to subscribe to certain values and to oppose others, to be indignant when, when exploitation takes place, and certainly not to find yourself in league or in overt support of a value system which is so antithetical and so toxic to the value system of the Torah. This is what this is how Rebbe Berechiah introduced Miguelas Esther, the pasuk in Yeshaya, the reference to the reference to the market forces which Haman and Achashverosh utilized to sell the Jewish people to their death. Rav began his teaching of Miguelas Esther by citing a pasuk in the second Torah, Not the first Torah of Parshas Bechukosai, a Torah which Shmuel referenced when he started teaching Megillus Esther, and which essentially would be extremely relevant for the story of Purim and the story of Shushan, because the first Torah in Bechukosai corresponds to the first galos, and Shushan occurred during the first galos. And as I mentioned in the first year of this series, the entire nation of Purim was, was geared towards demonstrating that even after Am Yisrael had betrayed HaKadosh Baruch Hu had worshipped Avodah Zarah, they were still chosen. This this was Hamman's great gamble, that he could defeat a people that indeed was chosen, but had forfeited or surrendered that chosen status. So, to cite the first Taukacha, or a pasuk from the first Taukacha, is extremely, extremely appropriate. But Rav saw something in the second Taukacha. And interestingly enough, if we compare the two tochachos—the one in Parshas Bchokosai and the one in Parshas Kisavo—the one in Bchokosai, of course, was written by a The one in Kisavo, the Gemara says, was written by Moshe Rabenu. Obviously, it doesn't mean it was written by Moshe, but it was delivered by a to Moshe with a human voice. And the tochacha in Parshas Bchokosai is punitive; it's national; it's historical. It's theological. It describes our relationship with the Rabboni Shilolim, the historical betrayal, um, the national crisis, the lack of food. But Parshas Kisavo, the second Tochacha, is much more existential. It describes the psychological torture of watching death, of seeing things that you never thought would occur, of of uh, not resting or not having any peace or solace amongst the nations, but being ported from place to place. And one of those psukin, Rob felt, was an extremely appropriate pasuk as a gloss or as an explanation for how the Jews suffered psychologically, facing this sudden threat from Haman. And that's really the, the primary theme of this pasuk. The pasuk says as follows. V'hayu chayacha mineged, pasak sam'chavav, your lives will be tlu'im, tlu'im probably means suspended, unsure, uncertain, mineged, ufachadata layla v'yomam, you will be racked with fear, day and night, v'lo t'amin b'chayacha. you will not believe in life, you will no longer have that optimistic view of your life. Babakir tomara mi'yitain aref, in the morning you'll be so um, tortured, you'll be so full of anguish that you'll just wait for the night to come, passing the day as best as possible, enduring the day, surviving the day. And at night the suffering and the, and the frustration will be so pitched that you'll yearn for the daybreak. Because of the intense fear you'll sense. And the grisly sights your eyes won't behold. Now, it seems as if Rav was sensing in these two psukim, of course he only cites one pasuk, the first one, but it seems as if Rav was primarily interested in the type of fear that Haman's decrees aroused within the Jewish people. And if you look carefully in the pasuk, there seems to be even a contrast in this pasuk. Things that scare us, things that terrify us, come in two forms. Sometimes there's a sudden, immediate, unexpected event that shocks us, that traumatizes, that reshapes our reality in ways that we weren't prepared for, and causes what we would call instability. It destabilizes us. It causes us to be afraid. It causes us not just to be afraid, but to be lose our focus, lose our equilibrium, become imbalanced. And then there are other challenges, which aren't sudden, but if anything, the challenge is that there's, there's a there's a dread that sets in because of something that may happen to us down the line, in our future, something we struggle with in our in our immediate future, in our long-term future, that causes us terror, that causes us uh, disquiet. And these two psukim in the Telchacha appear to touch on each. The first passage talks about chayecha t'loim mineged, your lives will be suspended, as if there's something in your future weighing upon your life, weighing upon your optimism, an aneurysm, causing stress, causing uncertainty. In fact, the Gemara Menachos interprets this Pesach in a totally different context, outside of the context of Neis Purim, about someone that doesn't own land. Because he doesn't own land, he's forced to, to purchase... Uh, the crops which will grow in a particular year, or to hedge his purchases, and purchase crops in two weeks, or purchase crops in six months. In any event, his life is suspended because he doesn't know how many crops will be produced, and presumably if the lands don't produce sufficient crops, his percentages will suffer. As opposed to a self-sufficient, independent farmer, who even if the famine is severe, will take his his minimal sustenance, will be able to feed he and his family, but the person who has to uh, purchase um, grains on the open market is much more dependent upon the success and therefore lives with this constant dread about how the future will unfold. And I guess we could call it fear versus dread. Fear is something in the immediate dread, is something that, Taxes our emotions in the longer term. And the first pasuk talks about Chayecha Tluyim. Your lives will be suspended. You'll dread the next day's events. There'll be some sense of future uncertainty about the national state, about your personal family situation. You'll lose the zest of life, the joy of life, the quality of life. And the next pasuk probably talks about more immediate fears. B'boker Tomar Miti there will be such powerful, impactful moments of fear and, and trauma that you, you'll just wait for the night to pass, just to recover, to, to solve your wounds. You'll wait for the day to pass. And I think what Rav was sensing was that in Shushan that year, a little of each occurred. On the one hand, and this is an amazing part, and this I think is Rav's primary thrust, this is the language of the Medrish. Rav interprets hatabas, that things move so quickly in Perak Shlishi. Perak Shlishi is the Perak in Tehillim, which, descri- excuse me, Ester, which describes Haman's rise to power, and by the time the Perak is concluded, the decree has been issued, the letters have been sent, the people in Shushan are rejoicing, the enemies of the Jews, the Jewish people themselves are mourning. Haman and Achashverosh are having a drink to celebrate their genocide. It just happened so quickly. Nothing was seen, nothing was uh, was anticipated, nothing could be predicted. It just takes one parak and within a day or two, the fate of the Jewish people are sealed. And Rob's language was, 24 hours from the time that Haman had been authorized to launch his plan 24 hours. Within 24 hours, the decree had already been distributed, had already been disseminated throughout all 127 provinces. And the next line that, Ra- that Rav interpreted, Rob layla v'yomam b'shash ha-ketavim And the Megillah takes extra pains to describe the, uh, the haste, the rapidity, the acceleration of this process that the letter-bearers, the Achash Dran and B'nei Ramachim, and I'll talk about this in a few moments, they literally ran, they literally sped. HaRatzim They were pressed into action, and promulgated this decree throughout Achash entire empire. So there was a sense of immediate fear, unanticipated, unexpected, shocking, uh, destabilizing, and yet, and this is Rav's continuation and yet for tamin Bahayah you won't believe in life or you you'll have this continuing and enduring sense of dread that they had to wait thirteen months, at least they thought they'd wait, eleven months excuse me, for their downfall, for for the ultimate decree. Remember, the timeline of the Megillah is that the decree was issued in Nisan, but the decree spoke about the Jews being annihilated in Adar. Ultimately, Adar became a day of Simcha, Yom HaSheh Nefach the Yagol But ultimately, the decree was rescinded or reversed, but the Jews found out about their fate, and they were expecting to live through the next 10-11 months of their lives, from Nisan to Adar, 11 months, to live in dread, to live with a sense of impending crisis, impending disaster, and they lost the sense of life, you you go crazy, you become suicidal. We have nothing to live for. You're just waiting for that event that you know will, will, will be an earthquake. You're waiting for that event to occur. And I think Rav was capturing these two types of fear that the Jews faced in Shushan that year. The immediate, shocking, unexpected rise of Haman, complete with his genocidal decree, coupled with this long, enduring dread and terror awaiting lehiyot asidim layom hazeh. And Rav, again, Rav's language was just to show you the medrash. V'hayu chayekha t'lum l'cha minagin. He talks about the first part of the Pesach, me'esleis, hasaras ha'tabas. It was 24 hours since the ring was removed until the decrees were issued. U'vachad at ve'yomam, and they were terrified, b'shash ha'ketavim p'archim, when the letters were sent. V'loot ha'min b'chayekha, they lost their joy of life, because they awaited an event that, at least in their minds, wouldn't occur for a full 11 months. And inasmuch as the events in Shushan were a template for Jewish Gaulists, there have been times in Gullus in which sudden, pachat pisom, as we say, al-tirami pachat pisom, sudden challenges have arisen where they weren't anticipated out of the clear blue, and that creates a certain discomfort and unawareness. And then there are other times that it takes a while for, I think in Germany, people could have seen it coming. Many people were in shock, but they could have seen the developments, the Nuremberg Laws and, and, uh, and uh, various other boycotts of Jewish businesses, Kristallnacht certainly, various discriminatory measures. And to a degree, the, the challenge in Shushan that year was more of the pisom, was the sudden, was the quick, rapid, accelerated terror to rise up and challenge the Jewish people. And the second part of the challenge was that they at least saw themselves initially before the miracle happened. The miracle also was a very, very quick turnaround. It happened all over Pesach. But they saw themselves as having to bear life for 11 months under literally the threat of death. Now... Part of what Rav is also pointing out as a sub-drama is the role of the letter carriers, it's the Achash <laughs> and b'neher machim the sav. <laughs> and There really is a lot of attention in Megillah's Esther paid to the people whose job it was to write letters and carry letters and seal letters, and it seems much to do about nothing. Why, are they, why is this interesting to us? Obviously the letters were dispatched, and technically it happened, but the Megillah doesn't record... Everything which occurred, it only records historically momentous, significant, influential elements of the miracle. And why are the letter carriers so, so pivotal? Part of the answer was that right around this time, letter writing became popular, became part of the culture, became basically the communication, the technology of their day discovered letter writing. People, until this point, had lived in small little enclaves, small nations or regions, and they could communicate with each other face-to-face, So they could communicate with each other by sending emissaries and delegates to speak to one another. At this point, larger empires began to develop, and we see the development of larger empires already before Megillus Esther, where there's the empire of Sancher of Melech Ashur, or in the end of the first base on Mikdash, the empire of Nebuchadnezzar Melech Babel, Empires spanning vast regions loosely held together by Confederate systems were first evolving. And you can only establish sovereignty over your empire if you can communicate with the various constituents and states of your empire with authority. And no longer can you just simply dispatch delegates and noblemen and colleagues to convey your wishes and your desires to your empire. So letter writing and the authority of letters became a crucial glue which bonded the empire and that's why Verish is so worried about reversing a letter, because once the authority of his letters are questioned, his empire will collapse. Keep in mind, Nebuchadnezzar got his start as a scribe, the Gemara tells us. So these scribes were not just custodians or technocrats, janitors and, and people involved in logistics. These letter carriers and letter writers were celebrities. They were political uh, personalities, they were rock stars, they they were responsible for for these empires taking hold and taking root. It's right around now that people start to write letters with great frequency and send their letters at great distances. And what's so important about the letter writing is that not only were these letters crucial in allowing empires to be established, but these letters were employed against the Jewish people. These were, th- this entire industry was was um, um, was activated to disseminate the rules to uh, promulgate the decrees to spread the word to spread the terror and just watching all these letter carriers and letter bearers and uh, charging out of their out of their uh, out of their facilities leaping out racing to all the provinces the jews had the sense that the The core energy of this empire, the core technology, was now being used against them to eliminate them. That was a very terrifying prospect. As Jews, we embrace technology, we embrace discovery. We're one of the first adjusters and early adopters to take whatever technologies cultures develop, whatever inventions, whatever new found ways of thinking, to utilize them, to change our lives, to change the lives of those around us. Judaism embraces science and embraces change. But every once in a while, we sense that the very resources and inventions that society has developed are tilted and used against us. And that is a very scary prospect, For especially if you're someone who embraces much of the frustration of Jews in the Holocaust, the psychological frustration, was when chemistry and transportation and modern psychology, all the recent developments of Western civilization which Germany had championed and which the Jews of Germany had spearheaded. All of a sudden, chemistry was being used to develop cyclone B gas, and transportation was being used to transport millions of Jews across Europe to to gas them, and psychology was being employed to try to break the human spirit. And all of a sudden, all these elements of culture, the newfound developments which Germany had initiated and which the Jewish people in Germany had embraced with a full heart, They were coming back to bite them, and this this created tremendous frustration, anger, and great fear, because you recognize the power, you recognize the potency of all these systems. And some of that occurred to the Jews in Shushan. Seeing the letter writers band against them, align against them, was extremely frightening. People sensed the power which these letter writers wielded. And that's what Rav was discussing. He wasn't just discussing this contrast between the immediate fear and the long-term dread. Here's also describing, again, Ufachadeta Layla quoting the Pesach in Kisava, you'll be frightened day and night, Bishash Perchim. When you see the letter writers running, focus on the letter writers, the uh, Achash that created tremendous, tremendous fear, tremendous upheaval, tremendous trauma, until HaKadosh Baruch Hu, interceded to Mordechai and Esther saving the Jewish people.